Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt. To record this episode, I recently went to Chicago to visit the Smart Museum of Art, currently exhibiting Solidary and Solitary, the Joyner Jafrida Collection, an extraordinary traveling exhibition that offers a new perspective on the critical contribution that artists of African descent have made to the evolution of abstract art from the 1940s to the present, and how San Francisco-based collector Pamela Joyner has helped shape that contribution in America. This episode features a recording of my actual visit to that exhibition, In this episode, we'll explore the works in the show, interpreting the collection as a story rather than simply a visual art exhibition. So for the occasion, before my visit, I called up one of the curators of the show. My name is Christopher Bedford. I'm the Dorothy Wagner Wallace Director of the Baltimore Museum of Art, and I am also the co-curator of Solidary and Solitary. The exhibition started at the Nasher Museum of Art in Durham, North Carolina, traveled to the Snipe Museum of Art at Notre Dame, and after its run in Chicago, we'll move on to the curator's home institution. The exhibition travels to the Baltimore Museum of Art this fall, and we are putting it in our special exhibition galleries, which are about 10,000 square feet. So the exhibition will roughly double in size, and it will be probably the most comprehensive history of post-war black abstraction that we've seen in any American institution. It's going to evolve a little bit. The title will even change. It will be called Generations, a history of black abstract art when it arrives in Baltimore. The effort in changing the title is to connect it very directly with the black majority city and to present very forthrightly this history that's been untold within the walls of the institution to date. As we've done several times on this podcast, I called up Christopher specifically to ask him, what is Untitled? What is Untitled in relation to this exhibition, and this episode in particular? I asked him to focus on an untitled artwork in the show. So Christopher, tell me, what is Untitled? So Untitled by Glenn Ligon is actually something of an outlier in the exhibition, something of an outlier in the context of Pamela's collection in that it is a text-based conceptual work of art and a sculpture. The collection is particularly strong in painting, and as you know from the exhibition, that's the preponderant medium and her primary passion. Glenn's untitled America America is two very large, sort of erratically flickering neon signs made of steel that lay on the floor, forming roughly a V-shape, and they are illuminated with white light that shines down from the black steel, flickering and animating the floor. It's a really interesting object in that it's big, sculpturally bracing, it's text-based, and I think because the word America is so deeply familiar, it's legible. But because the object faces down and away from you, and is backed by an enormous or a a very long steel beam, he deliberately occludes or interrupts the legibility of the word. And then, of course, the light itself is not shining up at the viewer. Instead, the light is shining down. I think it's a very characteristic and very canny, very smart Ligon play on black and white on one hand, on a light that is luminous but isn't lighting its surroundings to a maximum degree, but the object still contains that light. 
I also asked Christopher how this piece fits into the show and into Pamela's collection, which is widely known for focusing on post-war and contemporary abstraction. She tends to be interested in artists that are both literally non-objective in the way they make art. Sam Gilliam is a really good example, but also artists like Glenn, who dance with abstraction not by making non-objective work, but by making a sort of abstraction of a very familiar image or idea. This episode is the first in a series of exhibition walkthroughs where I'll be visiting shows and recording on-site interviews with curators and collectors, taking the time to listen to not only their interpretations of the artwork, but the stories behind them. Who made them? When? and where, how they came to be, and how they came to end up in the collection that now preserves and exhibits them. I'll be visiting private and public collections in this series, pop-up exhibitions, traveling shows, and more. Today's episode takes place in Chicago, Illinois, on a chilly February morning. So it is, this is the Untitled Art podcast, recording live from the Smart Museum of Art in Chicago. It is Friday, February 15th, 12 degrees outside, so that's a bit of a shock to my system because uh, we've barely had winter weather in New York this year. I'm so, so. <laughs> happy that I'm flying to New York tonight. And I am here with Allie Gass. Great. So I'm Allie Gass. I'm the Dana Feitler Director of the Smart Museum of Art at the University of Chicago. I am so thrilled to have a chance to talk to you about the current exhibition we just opened, Solidary and Solitary, the Joyner Jufreda Collection. How did this exhibition come together and how did it end up here in Chicago? Such a good question, actually. So I accepted the job as the director of the Smart Museum about 20 months ago. The press release dropped and I had been in the Bay Area for a long time at SFMOMA and at the Cantor. And Pamela Joyner, who I knew, emailed me and said, I can't believe you're going to the SMART. I grew up in Hyde Park and I went to the University of Chicago Lab School. I was super excited because I knew about this show of their collection. So Pamela and Fred, for those of you who don't know, are really among the most significant collectors of African-American abstraction across the late 20th and into the 21st century, really in the world. And they're deeply generous in supporting artists. They have a residency in Sonoma. They've really built their collection very thoughtfully with a mission-driven goal of correcting the canon of art history and including African-American artists where they often haven't been included. So I was super excited about the show. It felt like since Pamela was from here and I was coming to the SMART with this mission of expanding the narratives of art history that it was an amazing fit. And so Pamela agreed that the show should come here. And as I think about kind of what the Smart Museum could add to this already rich cultural landscape in Chicago, of course, with the Art Institute and the MCA and other great university museums, we really wanted to reflect our place in two ways. So we think about the University of Chicago, which is deeply committed to rigorous inquiry through kind of a global lens, bringing different perspectives together. And I think about our place here on the south side of Chicago, which has a significant and strong and wonderfully historic African-American community. So it felt really important to me that one of the first things the SMART did was do projects with artists that reflect the place that we're in. So Pamela's mission to correct omissions in the canon around African-American art in particular is one that we also really share. We're thinking 
about diversity very broadly, of course. We're including more women artists, Latin American artists, artists from across the globe, frankly. As you look at our exhibition plan in the next couple of years, you'll see continued exhibitions that we've put together under a series called Expanding Narratives. And each of them kind of looks at familiar art historical stories, but tells them with artists that you might not consider part of those canons. Mm -hmm. Well, this sounds like the perfect exhibition then. Yes, it's perfect. So I want to start the walk through, and I know that this exhibition has been adapted specifically for its installation here at the SMART. Because we're here in Chicago and it's Pamela's hometown, and it's really also a kind of incredible site of black arts history and many important African-American artists making art today, we decided to invite three African-American artists who are part of Pamela and Fred's collection, but not in the show, and live in Chicago to create new works. So we were kind of trying to emulate Pamela and Fred's commitment to offering artists opportunities to come and do something different. So the first piece is by the great artist Bethany Collins. Bethany is really interested in language and language as symbolic. She's very well known for her Ferguson Report piece where she embossed the entire Ferguson Report on white wallpaper so it becomes incredibly incredibly hard to read but it's such an important document that it as you approach it you realize that what looks so beautiful and simple holds these sort of very traumatic messages in them that sort of slip in and out of your vision and she's thinking about things that slip in and out of our cultural understanding. For this show, she wanted to do something new, and she's working with what she calls floriography, or maybe that's what it's actually called, and I've just never heard of it, which is the symbols of flowers. And so she started looking at the history of state flowers and how those have Bethany actually just joined us on the live broadcast in Miami Beach this past December. Here she is, talking about this body of work in her own words. It's based on the language of flowers, called floriography. It's incredibly popular in 19th century Victorian England. I think between like 1860, 1923, there were at least 100 flower dictionaries circulating in the U.S. alone. And essentially we think of flowers, uh, translating flowers today as a very simple uh, hobby, right? Rose equals love. In these 19th century flower dictionaries, though, The camellia, which is Alabama's state flower, actually means my destiny is in your hands. Delaware's state flower, I believe, is the peach blossom, which means I am your captive. Others were, I I burn for you, welcome me, let me go. These much more Victorian kind of poetic translations of the meanings of flowers. So I took all of the flowers for states in the American South, their official state flowers, and intertwined them with state flowers for where my family left the South going in the Great Migration. So those major migration routes from Alabama to Detroit and Mississippi to Chicago. And used all of those flowers to create this kind of love letter to the South that also... And now back to Allie, explaining how Bethany adapted this project specifically for this exhibition and its presentation at the Smart Museum. And for her, she's from Alabama, so she found out that the state flower of Alabama, I think... comes with the phrase, you belong here or you belong to me, which if you think of a history of slavery, takes on a whole new meaning. So she created this white, beautiful, embossed wallpaper that echoes the fine, gorgeous, like fabric wallpaper you would see traditionally in like really high society mansions. But this is covered with flowers that have symbols of the states that trace the path of the Great Migration. So it's deeply about African-American history through the language of flowers, but playing with this high wealth living style. 
And then after you view the Bethany Collins piece, you enter the doors. That's right. And here we are in the museum galleries. So the first painting we're seeing is a painting by Norman Lewis. It's a beautiful, beautiful painting, which if you think about being an African-American abstractionist in New York in the 60s, It's hard to imagine that beauty is at the forefront of your mind when you think about the political climate of the moment. It's a big six by seven foot canvas. It has vibrant yellows and then deep reds and pinks and oranges that kind of come up from the bottom in an abstract, hastily, almost like applied with a palette knife kind of a style, but they give you this feeling, frankly, of sort of almost like flowers emerging into this yellow field. It's a vibrant painting that was used a lot to promote the show. We did indeed pick it as the first one in the show because it's so inviting to come in and see it as a sight line as you enter the gallery. Especially on a 12 degree day. Especially on a 12 degree day and it makes you feel all of a sudden like warm and bright. It's a very, very special masterwork by Norman Lewis. One of the things that Pamela thinks about a lot is this was this important moment in post-war America when abstract artists were really becoming kind of like household names. Everybody knows the name Jackson Pollock. You know, he appeared on the cover of Life magazine and de Kooning and things like that. But Norman Lewis, who was working at the same time and living in New York and making abstractions, was less well-known. So it felt very important, I think, for Pamela and Fred to go deep with their collecting of Norman Lewis. So I read in an interview with Pamela once that the, the interviewee had asked her if you could um, keep one painting in your collection or what is the most important painting to you. She did say it was this painting, Afternoon, 1969, by Norman Lewis. Had you ever heard this before or heard her um, speak of that? I haven't heard her say that, but it doesn't surprise me yeah. at all. I mean, it's a really special painting. It's great. As Allie and I move further into the gallery, we pass a full presentation of paintings by Norman Lewis, and then we enter into a full solo installation of a variety of works by Sam Gilliam. ...who kind of set the stage for much of the African-American abstraction that comes later. I'll show you one piece that I think for us became really significant, and this is Sam Gilliam's hanging canvas, which is called... Stand from 1973. Sam Gilliam painted these canvases unstretched with these incredible spills of paint. Again, when we think of spills, we can think back to other art histories that we know and, and mark making. So it, you can think about kind of this idea of the drape being opposite of Jackson Pollock, right? You see things dripping and spilling hanging on the wall. The canvas stays unstretched and gets put together. Now, we have a funny story about this one where we got really lucky because Sam's daughter, Melissa Gilliam, is on the faculty at the med school here and also a vice provost for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And she and I have kind of become buddies. And I invited her to come over during installation. And she came over and she said, my dad did not like the way this has been hung before. So we get him on FaceTime and basically we completely read did the hang, which is sort of something you can do with Sam Gilliams, but he said he did not want it to look like a child's ghost costume because it has like a little circle Mm -hmm. at the top and he didn't want it to like drape straight out and fall. So all the corners are pinned up under to give it this sort of billowing sense of flying off the wall, which is great. I think some people have read it. We heard that at other museums, people had read it almost as a lynching 
image, and that's not at all how he thought of it. He really wanted it to be like this beautiful bird that comes off the wall. Yeah. So it was fun. And that's why the volume of the piece is so important to him. Yeah, the volume of the piece is really significant. In this exhibition, are there any artists that live in the Chicago area who were able to be here for the opening? Yes. Well, the three commissioned artists were here for the opening, Amanda Williams, Bethany Collins, and Sam Levi-Jones, and that was awesome. We're having a major gala around this show on April 6th, where we are celebrating Pamela as a collector who really has done a great deal of work to correct omissions in the canon and has been incredibly generous both to artists and institutions. So we're flying a lot of artists out here for that. It's going to be a party. Huge party, by the way. April 6th. The Smart Museum of Art presents the 11th Shapiro Awards Gala, celebrating Pamela Joyner. For tickets and more information about the event, go to smartmuseum.uchicago.edu slash support slash Shapiro award. Make sure to buy your ticket to support the Smart Museum in Chicago and to celebrate Joyner's incredible impact and contribution to diversity, education, and democracy as it relates to and within contemporary art today. After talking about Sam Gilliam's stand, what piece should we move on to next? Melvin Edwards, as you know, is just an amazing artist. And he, I think, more than Sam Gilliam, wasn't fully recognized at the time he was making work. I've seen him interviewed a couple of times and he's such a lovely man. And he makes these sculptural metal works that sit on the wall and they are references to a history of lynching. And in fact, they have to be hung in sort of a traumatic way to think of it, but at at neck height of someone who was being lynched. I think so much of the work in this show is about the balance between painting and sculpture to take it away from such social history, but put it into formal art history. A lot of these artists are really playing with, as many artists were at this moment in history, sort of sculptures that live in the space of painting on the wall. But these are very, very special works to have and we are of course a teaching museum and so the Center for Race and Ethnicity has done a lot of teaching around the Melvin Edwards pieces in particular. We've had a lot of history classes come in and start looking at these and they're not legible as suggesting that but they really are these kind of tangles of sort of found metal pieces all welded together. I also read that you, another quote of yours, yes. <laughs> that Solidary and Solitary is an exhibition of great art that is deeply aligned with the Smart Museum's commitment to tell a more diverse story through our exhibition program and collecting practices. So in many ways, one of your missions here is to tell stories through okay. exhibitions. So I'm a great fan of Melvin Edwards' work. When I see it here in this context of this exhibition, it certainly helps illustrate a story that this exhibition is looking to tell. But if you were to take, and this is separate to this exhibition, if you were to take Melvin's work or these sculptures out of this context, could they exist as just sort of a formalist um, take on 21st century sculpture? A hundred percent. And I'm really glad you said that because they're not literal, right? They are deeply responsive to American metalwork happening at the time. I mean, you could think of them as coming off of Anthony Caro or something like that. And what I love about telling stories with works of art and as we think about building our collection is we're really interested in works that become kind of signposts that can take you in lots of different direction depending on the context in which they're installed. So you absolutely could put these works into a show about formalist 
American sculpture, 100%, and that would be what they did for you. And so that's, I think, also the brilliance of any art that's a little bit political is when it doesn't hit you over the head, but it roots itself in things that artists have been thinking about and struggling with for a long time and takes that to some kind of next level. And I think Melvin Edwards absolutely does that. As we're going through the exhibition, it's almost like the artworks themselves become voices, and the voices together are telling a story. So as we're looking at the Melvin Edwards works here, um, which are titled Centuries, Central Avenue, LA, Hopes. Jam time. Jam time. You know, each title also contributes more uh, narrative to the story, more uh, illustrative language. So as we're standing here in this gallery, if these works by Melvin have a voice, how are they in dialogue with the other uh, voices in the room? Right, so this is one of those sections that the curators did as kind of a duet where Melvin Edwards is paired with Leonardo Drew, who is such a spectacular artist, also very much playing with traditions of formalist sculpture, also very much playing with the space between painting and sculpture. So we're standing in front of a major, major work which is called number 185 from 2016. And Leonardo Drew makes these just like large scale installations made primarily with bits and pieces of wood, wire, twigs, things that are both found and things that he buys and then kind of treats in such a way that they become aged. So this is this black, incredibly complicated assemblage of little bits and pieces of wood, some of which have been sort of charred, some of which have been really chipped at to make texture, some of which have been allowed to just stack, and some that live almost like driftwood coming out of the ocean or something, but certainly protruding well off the wall, almost in this hulking way above you. He's an incredibly interesting artist. He's taking wall relief and sculpture to a different level, absolutely. You could also put him in a lineage with other American sculptors. It doesn't have to be just part of this African-American story. There's something very Louise Nevelson mm -hmm. about this all-black work, right? And then you get to some of his other pieces. It's called number 205, where he started pulling color in. So the top half is this kind of left raw sort of seemingly driftwood like material and the bottom are these plaster chips that he had painted and then smashed that kind of come out at this little rough pattern and we like really fell in love with it and I think this one is almost you could make an argument in a tradition of Rothko when you think about color bands and large scale works on walls. Absolutely. It's so beautiful. Um, where is Leonardo Drew currently active and working? So he lives and works in New York, and there's a great Art 21 to watch about him. I'm taking some donors to see his studio visit, his studio, because it's just like such an exciting way of making art, of taking this detritus, which of course is a great 20th century tradition, this kind of anti-monumental material, and then somehow fitting it together to make these beautiful constructions that really live in the space of high art. The artist Leonardo Drew is represented by, and his work has also been exhibited with, longtime untitled art exhibiting galleries Vigo and Rosenfeld Porcini. So as we're moving on to this next section, which uh, is Kevin Beasley and Shanique Smith, as I was reading these 
curatorial statement for this show, I saw that Solidary and Solitary is told in a series of solos and duets, and the exhibition plays on the tension between the solitary being specifically, uniquely, and only oneself, and the solidarity of collective social identity. So as we've moved throughout the exhibition, we focused on this you know, entrance piece by Bethany Collins. We moved on to Norman Lewis, kind of the start of the show, this major gallery full of these incredible works by Sam Gilliam. We just went and saw Melvin Edwards and Leonardo Drew together. Yeah. And so now I, I assume this is our next duet. This is our next duet. And I think it was a really brilliant twist to think about the kind of idea of isolation that black artists may have felt at certain times, particularly in the New York art world. And then this idea that there is this collaborative culture that, and it's one that Pamela and Fred have really helped to foster and galleries have helped to foster and the artists themselves have created. So this does pair Kevin Beasley and Shanique Smith. The Kevin Beasley has become the favorite, favorite work of all school groups that come to see the show because it looks like this big sort of disc coming off the wall made of flowers encased in resin, but when you look closely, they're actually all New York Yankees caps cut up to be flowers, so it's, it's like a beloved work. Really, really beautiful. I think Pamela used to have it hanging in her, on her ceiling when you entered in. It's radiant. I know, it's beautiful. It's really, really, really nice, and kids love it. Maybe we should go... Are any of the Kevin Beasley works in the show Sonic artworks? No, none of them are Sonic. It's obviously a great interest of ours yeah. here on the podcast is um, Kevin Beasley, who currently has a major exhibition on view at the Whitney Museum yes. in New York, also uh, creates sculpture that often has a sonic component. So definitely an artist to listen to next time you see it in a museum Absolutely. at an art fair or in a gallery. He's such a strong artist. Um, maybe we should go to Lynette and then do okay. the last two commissions. Does that sound okay yes. to you? Okay. Skip Glenn. <laughs> so in other iterations of this exhibition, the show has really ended with a pairing of Jack Whitten and Mark Bradford for various reasons, one being that we had some trouble with our fitting, some of those large-scale works in, and two, that we really wanted to make sure we were telling a kind of our own story. We end with Lynette Yadamboke, who is just this gorgeous, gorgeous portrait painter. To me, feeling so much like she's taking the language of Velasquez that was, you know, then borrowed by Manet, these kind of single figures on a large-scale canvas emerging out of a dark background with a kind of space of legibility being hard to discern, but these kind of great portraits. They're genuinely large-scale portrait works, and I really think they create this incredible end, and they also show this movement into collecting and caring about figuration. Excellent. So I'm going to show you now the second of our commissioned works, and this is the work of Sam Levi-Jones, who is such a talented artist and such a lovely person. Sam uh, lives between Indiana and Chicago and has, as many people know, been really coming on the scene, making large-scale canvases that are made from ripping apart law books or often medical books or other kinds of texts. So when you see his canvases, sometimes it's really hard to tell what that material is, but the fact that they are the kind of innards of the fabric binding of law books is really where the story lies for him. And again, as the theme keeps going, 
he's another artist who really plays with this notion of painting and sculpture. They feel like paintings, but there's not a shred of paint on the canvas. We did something different with him here that he wanted to try, and this is what makes me so happy when you can give an artist a chance to try something completely new. So we're looking at a law books installation where he has pulled the bindings, the fabric bindings off the books, stitched them together, shows you what looks and feels more like a traditional Sam Gilliam where you kind of just see the innards of the books, but then he's allowed that piece to fall down almost as if it was falling out of the space of the wall and that's where you see the outside of the aged old law books and what you see behind them is this void in the wall. So we literally had to cut into the wall to make them. And for him, I think it's so much about questioning like what's behind these books that people study to learn how to govern our land. And so what law for who and about what? And does it cover everything or does yeah. it cover nothing? Especially poignant here on the campus of the University of Chicago. Yes, very much so. These feel like such university art museum projects. We have a great law school here that is questioning the law all the time, and we're arranging some teaching to happen around this. I love works like this that are about books and, and thinking about history. So on the other side are three large-scale wall works by Sam that look completely different than things you've seen him do before. And completely different to the installation, just and in terms of tone and palette. It's almost like with the installation, he took his law book covers to like their next possible extreme with creating them as an installation and allowing you to see the covers. On this side, he wanted to do something totally different. He asked if we would buy him a paper pulper, which we did. And what you're looking at is pulped up law books that have been like put through a grinder and turned entirely into colorful paper pulp that feel like geometric abstractions in two instances and like a big, large-scale, almost abex, active abstraction over there. So this is was really exciting. This is totally like the next step in Sam's practice, and these are really the first. I know he made a little pulped paper one to practice, and Pamela has it, but these are the first like major ones that he's made, and we're super proud to be premiering them here at the Smart. The artist Samuel Levi Jones is represented by, and his work has been exhibited with, longtime Untitled Art Exhibiting Gallery, Roncini. All right, I'm going to walk you to the end of the exhibition where we finish with our last commission by Chicago-based artist Amanda Williams. Amanda, of course, was trained as an architect and urban designer and then really has become a practicing artist, but her work is deeply conceptual and always thinking about the, her place, her place in Chicago. So she started by looking at a map that was the historic redlining map of Chicago, and she wanted to think about, like, you know, Chicago is both one of the most diverse and one of the most segregated cities in the country, and so she wanted to think about, like, what would happen if you could shake the city up and make people who live in these very different places, like, all of a sudden be on top of one another. So that's literally what she did with the traditional redlining map. She shook it up, she cut out the little neighborhoods, shook them onto a printing press and then made these like beautiful embossed prints out of them. So I'm just going to jump in. We're standing um, near the exit of the exhibition and what we see is a a large um, map of the Chicago metropolitan area uh, and right in front of it is a red carpet that appears to come from the entrance of the museum which honestly when I came in I didn't notice as something that 
potentially was an artwork in the exhibition. And it leads from the entrance all the way into the galleries, and then it goes straight up the wall towards the ceiling. So that's what we're looking at as we're viewing this commission, and I'm just going to return back to you. Yeah, thank you. And you can see, like, even we are, like, kind of nervous to step on the red carpet because it's now become clear that it's an artwork. So here's where it comes from. Of course, she's interested in redlining. The whole project is about redlining. There's a wonderful author in Chicago and reporter named Natalie Moore who wrote a book called The South Side, and Amanda's been spending a lot of time with her looking at the history of redlining and the history of white flight out of Chicago. And there's a line in Natalie Moore's book that says, rolling out the red carpet for white flight. So this is kind of the carpet that was rolled out through redlining and other things that happened and the decimation of African-American neighborhoods as whites fled the city proper. So Amanda's, I think it's okay for me to tell you that her fantasy project to do at the end of this would be to find the two exits off of the major freeway that runs through Chicago that were really the sites that many, many white people moved to. One is Calumet, one is Schomburg. And we're going to see if we can work with the mayor's office to one Sunday morning shut down those exits and literally roll a red carpet down them and photograph it as a red carpet to white flight. So that's really what this project is very much about. Wow, I hope that comes into fruition and it would be, uh, I think, hugely admirable on part of the city of Chicago to really support an artist's work like that. We really hope it happens and we're having a mayoral election soon so it may depend on who wins. But Chicago is a city that has really embraced its own complicated history through the arts. The Obama Center is opening on the South Side soon and Amanda Williams is one of the artists who's advising on that so I think she's thinking a lot about the history of place. They're lucky to have her as an advisor. Yes, yes definitely. Okay. Cool. So are, are we running short on time? We are, and that you have now seen the entire show and all three commissions. As this is a storytelling exhibition, is there any artwork or any anything related to these three commissions that really became story-worthy for you in terms of installing? Sam, for sure, because it was only at the last minute that he decided that he wanted to cut holes into the wall that were like perfectly made so that the book pieces could fall out. So there was like a little bit of like crisis around, oh my gosh, we have to like rebuild our walls and cut them. The paper pulper is not inexpensive. So the decision to buy that for him was, you know. And then I think watching Bethany sat in the hallway in the lobby watching these professional wallpapers put up her piece. And it took, I think, two and a half days. And she literally just sat and watch just to make sure that it was perfect. And there are little crevices in the wall where they had to like fold them in so they would meet perfectly. And she would like get up and just like watch. They handled it really well. She handled it really well. But you get patience it. Like, is a virtue. Yes, when like these are some these are artist babies, you know. And with Amanda, me and Amanda always have fun together. Like she and I both have the definite problem and gift of having like too many ideas. So we have been sitting for six months probably being like, okay, redlining, we're going to have maps, we're going to have snow globes that you shake up, and we're going to have this, and then we're going to have a red carpet, and we're going to paint the cracks red, which we did do, actually. The cracks in the floor are red. And in the end, I think we came to something much simpler and easier to understand. But I would say that like with Amanda, we cycled through so many things and the red carpet down the freeway which we decided let's wait and see if we can do that in the spring well thank you so much for taking me on the tour of solidary and solitary the joiner geofrida collection at the smart museum of art I 
want to give a special thanks to Christopher Bedford and Ali Gass for joining me on this episode and to Pamela Joyner and Alfred Jafrida for their 20-year support for these artists as they've built their collection starting in 1999 with a focus on abstract work by post-war and contemporary African-American artists from 1945 to the present and in recent years expanding the collection's focus to include artists from Africa and the global African diaspora. And an additional thanks to Mnemonic Recordings for producing this episode and to my team at Untitled Art for sharing in my belief that by tuning out, you can tune in. And finally, an enormous thanks to the composer of the original soundtrack you heard at the beginning and end of this episode by Celia Hollander from the score for Madeline Hollander's performance, Mile, originally performed at Untitled Art Miami Beach in 2015. episode, I leave you with a quote from John Cage. Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. So I'd like to invite you to keep on listening and think of listening as another way of looking.